Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And welcome back to part two of Now and Then, which, Caroline, I'm going to admit it, I, I did name these episodes after the, the classic movie Now and Then about childhood <laughs> girl friendships. I think, I mean, that's <laughs> applicable to talk about the feminist movement. Uh, we, we get images, uh, going back into these girls' past yes. when they were growing up, and then we flash forward to see where they are in the present. And, and we're kind of doing that with our conversation with Terry, looking into now's past, and then going forward and looking at where they are and where they're going. And to extend our now and then metaphor, just one, one step farther, you know, the, the story is about all these, these girls with different personalities, because of course you have to have that for an ensemble mm-hmm. comedy that's enjoyable. Consemble. Com, comsemble. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this part two episode picking up as the women's liberation movement is really coming into its own, we are starting to do see what happens when we have kind of a clash of personalities, when we have a lot of different women from a lot of different backgrounds and with a lot of different ideas in the same room. And the trouble that can arise specifically when the woman in the front of that room starts to get paranoid about lesbian interlopers, essentially. Yeah, I think I think this example has ceased to be hypothetical. And we, we are specifically talking about Betty Friedan. Oh, yeah. We're no longer in, in now and then. No, Christina Ricci and Rosie O'Donnell, far away. We're talking about Betty Friedan. Um, and as we teased to at the end of the last episode, um, this moment in the late 60s and early 70s where Betty Friedan is kind of uh, escorted to the side mm-hmm. um, is a really important moment that deserves more attention and understanding uh, of ours as millennial feminists because the standard line is, oh, well, National Organization for Women tried to kick all its lesbians out at one point. So, what you know, they must be terrible. And while there is a grain of truth to that, Terry O'Neill, who is the current president of the National Organization for Women, has some very helpful nuance to add to yeah. also give some insight as to how Betty Friedan's homophobia um, affected people within the organization and like what they think about that today. Yeah, so let's hear what she had to say in terms of that nuance. You know, I, Betty Friedan did lasting, lasting damage to the organization uh, because of her attitude. It wasn't just that one phrase, uh, uh, although the phrase is just is just horrible. Um, but it was truly her belief that uh, we would not get that she had this hierarchical um, view. She came, quite frankly, she came out of the economic justice uh, labor movement, and uh, which to this day remains unfortunately hierarchical, sort of our, our issues first, and then we will come back and get your issues. And that was the way Betty Friedan approached it. Um, and then, and, and, and shockingly to me, she says us and them when she's talking about women. I mean, the last time I checked, lesbians are women. In any event, she did do lasting damage. In 1971, her, uh, her view was soundly defeated soundly defeated within the organization, 1971. That is when the organization adopted clear policy that lesbians are women and lesbian rights are one of our core issue areas. So 
45 out of our 50 years, we have had lesbian rights. Of course, it eventually grew to LGBT. Now it's LGBTQIA, uh, full civil and human rights. But, uh, that, but, but she did lose. And it was a, a, it was an organization wide conversation and her view was defeated. So also going on during this time though, You've got the strike for equality uh, on August 26, 1970. We get this huge strike for equality that signals basically the start of the women's lib movement and attracts a ton of women to local now chapters. So the strike was intended to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the 19th Amendment and also call for three main things, abortion on demand, 24 hour child care centers and equal education and employment opportunities for women. Yeah. Major three major ways to be able to control your life. Be able to say what you how you want to live your life. Yeah, and one really fascinating like byproduct of the strike was that it attracted a lot of housewives, you know, women who were in those local chapters of now who would probably see the the New York organization and say, you know, that's not for me. I'm not in Manhattan. I'm like Susie in Kansas and I've got three kids and I do feel oppressed, but I don't know what to do about it. And then the strike happens and gets all this media attention. And they're like, oh, there's a chapter here. I can get involved. And in the same way as those younger activists out of the civil rights movement brought consciousness raising to the organization, these newer, more suburban now members were more into things like correcting media images of women and gender stereotyping in children's books, which yeah. makes sense. You know, meet people where they're at. Uh, they were focused more on those kinds of things that they immediately identified with versus fixing job discrimination. We'll see. I mean, I, I love when we hit on these very clear examples in so many of our episodes where it's clearly so important to have people with a diverse set of backgrounds and viewpoints and life experiences. And sure, absolutely diversity in race and ethnicity, diversity in age, but also, like I said, just diversity in life experience, because what a great idea to tackle the children's book stereotypes. Yeah, I mean, a, a very basic thing yeah. that probably, you know, a, a radical feminist in Brooklyn might not be as focused on, not because she is not as good of a feminist, um, but simply because, like you said, it's all about those, you know, personal connections, mm -hmm. the things that are relevant to you. It's all about following that anger, really. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I'm kind of into that tactic totally. personally, although sometimes following my anger means I just need to eat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But. Blood sugar is getting real low. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Yeah. But uh, by 1974, now has really come into its own. In addition to expanding its platforms to encompass uh, lesbians, it's also passed a resolution to focus more on women of color and address racism within the organization itself. And there are more than 40,000 members at this point in a thousand chapters across the country. That's not small potatoes. I know. So this thing is, I mean, this whole feminism happening. thing. I know. Feminism is. It's happening. It's happening. <laughs> so as now is growing, it's attracting all of those thousands of members across the entire country, a diversity of viewpoints, a diversity of backgrounds. We start to see sort of this delicate and, and challenging balancing act that's happening between legitimizing a, a hierarchy in the organization, but also balancing that against 
participatory, angry, and rightfully so, membership. Yeah, because you have this formal top-down structure with local grassroots chapters at the bottom. And that structure kind of hampered diversity initially and kind of led to some of those schisms that we mentioned. Um, and a lot of it's the organization's growth also led to organizational problems because there really wasn't a middle structure mm-hmm. between, you know, national now and these local chapters. But those local chapters really just thrived on anger, probably, mm-hmm. and, and, and enthusiasm because you have local now activists who would create their own packets on effective lobbying, filing discrimination suits, contacting the media, things about sexist imagery, you know, because they did not have websites and, and Google shared drive, <laughs> you know, where you could set up, you know, a, a standard packet for everyone. So they were just doing it on their own, kind of passing along these tactics analog style. But okay, when you said enthusiasm, I can't help it, but I immediately picture, you know, those like college banners that yes. people can wave. I immediately picture like a crowd of wildly enthusiastic women waving those little collegiate banners that say like angry and and feminist. And, and, and I just, and then I like went off on a tangent in my brain about how I want those banners. That yeah, like a angry. pennant? Uh, yes, yes. An, an angry femi- an angry feminist pennant? Maybe it says angry on one side and feminist on the other and you can just wave them back and forth. I love it. Scream for an end of the wage gap. I would get on public transit with that. I would get in every <laughs> crowded elevator that I see. Um, yeah, someone, someone on Etsy, can you get on that? <laughs> If someone hasn't already made those. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and one thing kind of peculiar about now was that the leaders were experts in law, media and politics, as we mentioned. But they were not experts in movement making. I mean, f- at the beginning, Betty Friedan's vision for now was to make it a relatively small and exclusive group of influencers, essentially, Mm -hmm. you know, like you said a while back, like she kind of handpicked these women at the top of their fields, like the most brilliant feminist women that she knew with the goal of what? Just having them of with the goal of influencing politics. okay, and policy. Yeah. So not necessarily doing all of that organizing and angry pennant waving. Exactly. I guarantee you, Betty Friedan was not thinking about like (laughs) sexist imagery in children's books when she wanted to start this. Yeah. Um. And the thing is, regardless of what your organizational goal is, when you have a massively diverse and geographically scattered group of people and identities and politics under the same umbrella, you're going to have challenges. You're probably going to have some schisms. I mean, these these are just natural byproducts, I think, of, of an organization that is succeeding. So mm-hmm. I think some of the side eye that now has received is really unfounded because it's I don't know it's almost like we have expected feminists to be too perfect in a way you know to not have disagreements and to not be you know and not to have prejudices as well sure yeah I know and and as much as we want our feminist leaders from whatever group to be these perfect amazing upstanding humans we're we're all imperfect i mean that's part of the work right that's part of the work is uncovering our 
biases and our prejudices and rooting them out so right. that we can work for a greater good. Well, and that's and that's one of the stunning things looking at this early history is how swiftly this increasingly diverse group of women evolved in terms of their platforms and kind of holding themselves accountable to their own privileges and prejudices. But at the beginning, you know, it, it probably did not look like an organization that would survive for 50 years because you have a lot of second wave groups. Meanwhile, that were flaming up and flaming out really quickly. So that's a big question, too, of like, what has been the staying power of the National Organization for Women? I mean, you've got anger. Anger is pretty powerful. Um, and the whole thing of making the personal political. But Terry O'Neill really attributes it to the power of grassroots organizing. I think the reason now has survived so long um, is, A, because we have remained grassroots and driven by the grassroots. I can tell you that it will, doing and running an organization that way will make you old before your time, <laughs> but it, it gives such power to the grassroots. Now, we have 230 active chapters and action teams, as we're calling them, around the country, all of which are autonomous. They're, they do not take their orders from national. They, 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 national now, the president of national now speaks for the national organization. Each chapter president speaks for her organization. They decide on their own policies and programs. Obviously they can't, they can't violate national now policy, but beyond that, they are autonomous. And that has proved to be, to, to, to really be sort of the backbone of resiliency for the organization. The other piece, I think, that has kept us um, uh, viable is precisely the multi-issue, our dedication to multi-issues. And it is, it is not just our, our dedication to these multiple issues, but it's our very clear policy that we are not permitted to elevate one issue over another. We have removed individuals from leadership um, in the organization who tried to elevate one issue over another. We, we are very clear that that is not how you get equality for women. And now is more than just grassroots organizing or angry pennant waving. I mean, there are some very real concrete accomplishments and successes that they've been able to usher in. Yeah, and probably successes that folks aren't aware of. Mm -hmm. So, of course, um, we asked Terry to share some of her success stories. Well, let's see. First, uh, let's just talk about first thing that occurs to me. Of course, I'm going to go right back to the elections because that's where my head is. But but um, now was one of the organizations that early on created a political action committee. Mm -hmm. And the focus was to elect more feminist women to office. And we have always uh, the PAC has always endorsed men as well as women. We endorse on issues. Um, exclusively. We do have a rule if you have a man running against a woman and they are both equally qualified, equally endorsable, then we do endorse the woman. That's a rare occurrence. Um, but anyway, we, the, so, so one of the biggest uh, successes that I think we've had is the election of more and more and more women to uh, office, both at the state level and in Congress. I mean, when now started out in 1960, there were hardly any women in the United States Congress. Today, it's only 20%. It's not nearly enough. But we also have Hillary Clinton running for president. And we have we are building a bench of women leaders 
uh, that will come after Hillary Clinton and run for president and run for governor of various states and so forth. So that's, I think, a huge win. Another huge win that we had, and this is this is something that I think a lot of people don't know the history of it, and it is it is one of the most, uh, for me, wrenching. Uh, it's a wrenching win, and that is the Violence Against Women Act. Now, I can tell you that after the Violence Against Women Act was passed in the mid-1990s, incidents of domestic violence homicide dropped precipitously, absolutely dropped precipitously. The Violence Against Women Act simply provides uh, programs and funding uh, for intimate partner violence uh, to stop it and also to respond to it in in, in a way that is victim-centered. That was new in the mid-1990s. Why do I say it was wrenching? It was wrenching because... It, the um, the political process in the 1990s, if you recall, Newt Gingrich was uh, what was in charge of the House, um, and I'm, I need to. Uh, Newt Gingrich was certainly very much a leader at the time. There was all these very conservative uh, legislators in both the House and the Senate, um, and the the compromise that was made was to have the um, the omnibus crime bill. Mm. was passed, and the Violence Against Women Act was part of that omnibus crime bill. And the omnibus crime bill provided lots of money for training police and prosecutors and judges around domestic violence and intimate partner violence, but it also created an enormous amount of money for community policing, which has over the years been perverted into stop and frisk. Right. And in and later on, in subsequent um, years, the U.S. military, frankly, began dumping a lot of its materiel into local police forces. And so with this community policing now becomes community occupation in many communities. And anyway, but 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 quite frankly, uh, freeing women, giving women tools to uh, to leave intimate partner Violence has been quite revolutionary. So that was, that was the second huge win that we had. And I would say the third win that we had was really driven by now and an organization called Legal Momentum, uh, which is, which does litigation for women's rights. Uh, we sued, we brought, uh, a racketeering suit against extremist organizations that were blockading abortion clinics and, uh, and, and threatening Violence against abortion providers and just were really, again, this was in the late 1990s, I think we filed the lawsuit. We won a nationwide injunction as a result of which attacks on abortion clinics plummeted by more than 80%. Um, that was a huge win. Uh, during the, during the time that litigation was going on, we also were able to pass the freedom of, uh, what is it, freedom of access to clinic entrances, the FACE Act, which essentially makes it a federal crime to block, um, clinic entrances. It doesn't mean that they can't still harass, uh, providers. They clearly are doing that. Um, but our, our efforts to stop the violence against, uh, uh, clinics had huge impact and really, uh, really was very helpful. Caroline, as a person who has periods and the host of stuff I've never told you, I am delighted to promote Lola, which is a startup founded by women for women all about tampons. I mean, is there anything 
smintier than that. That's pretty sminty. And the the great thing about these tampons is that, yeah, not only is it coming out of this great women-driven company, but these tampons that they've created are 100% natural and therefore 100% easy to feel good about. Unlike a lot of those major tampon brands out there, Lola offers complete transparency about the ingredients that are in their tampons. They are 100% cotton with no added chemicals, fragrances, synthetics, or dyes. And Lola is customizable. You can choose your preferred assortment of 18 light, regular, or super tampons. You can also decide how many boxes you'd like delivered right to your door and select your shipment frequency. You can cancel, skip an order, or modify your subscription Anytime, Lola will email you two days before your boxes ship, and they pride themselves on no surprises or gimmicks, which really, if we're talking about menstruation, it's great that there are no surprises or gimmicks here. <laughs> you can wear all the white pants you want. Yes. So thank you for that, Lola. And listeners, of course, we have a special deal for you. For 60% off your first Lola order, visit mylola.com and enter Mom stuff when you subscribe. That's right. And don't forget, for 60% off that first order, go to mylola.com and enter code MOMSTUFF. And now, back to the show. And of course, there are initiatives that the National Organization for Women has not been able to see through. Uh, Muriel Fox, when she was talking to Time Magazine in June 2016, highlighted the issue of child care for women. I mean, that yeah. is still a massive perpetual problem. Problem, Yeah, especially mm-hmm. in the United States. Um, she also highlighted the uh, emphasis on individual rather than institutional change, a la lean in that our kind of popular feminist mantras can Overfocus on. Right. The idea being we do still need to band together. We need each other. We still need this grassroots organizing. We can't all be expected to like bootstrap it and just the focus on the individual <laughs> leaning in is not the answer in every situation. Right. I mean, you, our workplaces should be held accountable to change as well. Um, and, and she's also very frustrated by the constant likability penalty that ambitious women face. Oh, yeah. And I mean, obviously, Hillary Clinton being like a one (laughs) example of this whole likability penalty. But there's another issue that we're going to devote a podcast to in the future, which is the Equal Rights Amendment um, that I asked Terry about specifically, A, because um, I'm... I wanted to learn more about it, partially for selfish reasons, because we are going to do a podcast on it in the future. Um, but also because it's this piece of legislation that is such a no brainer in so many ways mm-hmm. and yet was stymied. And Terry fills us in on the whole background of the Equal Rights Amendment, if you're not aware of what it is. That is one of the most fascinating stories. Uh, so women win the vote in 1920, and immediately Alice Paul, who was one of the major um, uh, leaders of the fight for women's suffrage, immediately writes uh, 
the next document that she wants to pass, which is the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution. She wrote it in the 1920s. It was it was submitted to Congress repeatedly in Congress after Congress after Congress. In 1972, finally, Congress passes uh, the proposed Equal Rights Amendment, which simply says equality of rights under the law shall not be abridged on account of sex. So that's 1972. The only way they're able to get it passed is they, they stuck on a, t- it was originally a seven year, then it became a 10 year, um, time limit. Only if 35 states ratify within the, within 10 years, then the ERA becomes part of the Constitution. In the early going, the ERA caught on like wildfire. It was, it was, uh, by 1976, I believe it was by 1976. The thing comes out of Congress in 72. And I think that by 1976, fully 35 states had already ratified. Then comes the backlash, uh, the Catholic Church, the, a lot of the chambers of commerce, the, the, the commercial world, the, the, the business community was viciously opposed to the Equal Rights Amendment for reasons I have never understood, but they put huge resources into stopping it. The, 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 so Eleanor Smeal, who at the time was the president of, Nash, of the National Organization for Women, decided that, that now had to make the ERA a huge, huge issue. One last push, let's get all of those 38 states ratified. So she created a nationwide action campaign that was years long. It was remarkable. It was galvanizing. It was, uh, it, it was just this huge, huge effort. Um, ultimately, we fell three votes, three states short of ratification. Um, some people at the time said that the ERA was dead. It turns out it was stalled. It was not dead. It's it stalled. We we believe that the ten year uh, time limit was bogus and uh, and and not effective. So we are still working to pass the, to ratify the ERA with three three more states. But here's the amazing part of what happened. That huge movement with men and women supporting the Equal Rights Amendment, even though we failed to get those last three states to ratify it, it absolutely sparked a sea change in people's attitudes. So 1982 comes and those, those last three states have not ratified the amendment. Then by the end of the 1990s, the surveys are showing that huge majorities, I'm talking 80-some-odd percent of men, 90-some-odd percent of women, are all saying that women should have equality and that it should be in the Constitution, and 75% of them now say it already is in the Constitution. So you have to ask yourself, what did those women do in the 1980s after the ERA failed to get those three votes? What was going on? It was absolutely remarkable. They remained active. They remained determined to to achieve equality. And in fact, because they had such huge public support, overwhelming public support for the concept of women's equality, they were able to move forward um, in, in huge numbers. Ten years after 1982 comes 1992, right? That is the year that huge numbers of women get elected to Congress. So it was, uh, it, it, you just can't call it a defeat when you look at what happened afterwards. <laughs> it was the, the, the leaders of, the leaders of the movement, it was the leaders of now, it was the leaders of other women's organizations, saw that there was all this energy and, uh, and they used it, uh, and they channeled it into making more gains in other ways. 
But if for some reason you're not as deeply interested in the ERA as we are and thinking that, oh, the fight for for the ERA is is old news, um, I mean, we have to emphasize the fact that now is very much still active in pushing for institutional change and is massively and has been massively influential uh, in the legal arena as well, especially when it comes to protecting and expanding women's rights. And along those lines, Kristen, you asked her about the Stanford rape case and the whole campaign that rose up around it to get the judge on that case recalled. I think it's important to recall this judge. I am so grateful to Professor Michelle Dauber in, at Stanford, who is leading the um, the recall case. And uh, and I hope your listeners will go will go to uh, recallaaronpersky.com or re- recalljudgepersky.com. Both of those go to uh, Professor Dauber's website that she has set up. This is going to be a costly effort. But I think it's possible to get that man off the bench entirely, not relying on him to be to resign. But we are. But I think that the voters out in California need to take him out um, of that position. He doesn't belong on the bench. And I think that this is going to have huge repercussions because it's going to prove that we can do something that collectively we who care about uh, sexual assault, we can actually take action that is impactful. It, it, it will. Um, I think it is now part of the growing movement to stop rape on campus, um, which is also, quite frankly, a movement to stop rape in the military, and it's a movement to um, to end uh, and, and trafficking girls in middle school and high school. It's a different type of issue. But sexual assault and sexual violence, I think, are becoming um, important issues nationwide, and I hope that recalling Judge Persky can be a huge step towards signaling to all of the other judges out there that it is not okay to somehow justify a vicious, a vicious felony because a young man also knows how to swim and is white. So, and I don't think you can you can eliminate the the racial aspect of this. Uh, just think what might have happened if the perpetrator had not been white. Mm-hmm. And had not been a star athlete, so th- so that's that's part of it. Um, I I also think that um, I think it's very important because I had this conversation with uh, with a number of people the other day, and I, you know there are two systems of law that exist that are relevant to sexual trauma and sexual assault. One is our criminal justice system, and the criminal justice system does not put the victim at the center of its concern. In fact, it's the state versus perpetrator. It's not victim versus perpetrator. So that you've got the criminal justice system where the community itself is, has been offended and is putting this criminal away. Then you have Title IX on college campuses, which exists to ensure that every um, woman gets an equal educational opportunity, and that would include victims of sexual assault. So colleges have an obligation to ensure the equal educational opportunity of all of their students. That, that, that The equal educational opportunity is not served if all you do is turn this guy over to the police. Of course you have to turn a rapist over, the, over to the police. But in addition, schools have an obligation to ensure that the victim receives a fully equal education. To me, all of that says that the National Organization for Women is not to be taken for granted Mm -hmm. and is still 
incredibly relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, along those same lines, one thing that I definitely wanted to ask Terry about in terms of maintaining their relevance is how she sees activism intersecting with technology and social media because obviously, you know, like we said, there was no Google share drive. There was no Twitter back in the day when all everything was getting off the ground. Mm-hmm. So it's also been really crucial for the organization to remain current in terms of how we communicate mm-hmm. with each other and, you know, publicize feminist platforms to the world at large. And listen, Terry thinks that social media is terrific specifically for intersectionality. Digital activism has actually grown to be a really key part of, of grassroots, active, grassroots organizing for now. Um, I will tell you that many of our chapters do an enormous amount of their organizing through Facebook because it's a very friendly platform uh, for doing things. It, it is no longer the case that most women can travel long distances to go to a monthly chapter meeting. Many do. Many have virtual meetings of their chapters instead. So uh, utilizing the online tools is huge. And, of course, um, pushing your message out by social media and following your allies and understanding what their message is has been a key part of being able to respond quickly, so a rapid response to things that are going on. In fact, it was, my, it was the New York City Now chapter president who actually um, contacted me and said, how about if you and California Now and I all put together this letter about Judge Persky? And I said, wow, Sonia, if you could do that, <laughs> I would be forever grateful. So she took the lead on it. Um, the, the, um, the existence of social media, I think, is huge. I think something else uh, is happening, and I, and I know it has happened for me um, and for many of the now leaders uh, that I interact with, and I'm hoping that it permeates throughout the entire organization, and it's this. Some of the most eloquent and, uh, and active individuals on Twitter are African-American women, It just so happens that the most reliably progressive voters in our country right now as a group are African-American women. I think that social media has given feminists, particularly anti-racist feminists, an opportunity to interact with these amazing women and to learn from these amazing women and to have their understanding of, of the feminist agenda deeply informed by these amazing African-American uh, women and Latinas and Latinxes who are, um, who are all on social media. And so I think that that is broadening and deepening our understanding of what the feminist agenda is all about. Well, so speaking of staying current with digital activism and remaining relevant through things like social media, you know, we wanted to know what the future holds for this very important grassroots organization now that it's 50, now that it's reached, I guess, middle age. What what does the future hold? Well, for one thing, the Equal Rights Amendment, round two, around bazillion if you count all of the you know initiatives to get it passed now is at the moment formulating a national action campaign around an intersectional interpretation of the era not only do we want to ratify the era we want to make sure that the era is relevant for immigrant women that it's relevant for african-american women that it's relevant 
for pregnant women and relevant for women who don't want to get pregnant, that it's relevant for lesbians and transgender women and uh, the entire LGBTQIA community. We're, we're going to be rolling stuff out, and it's one of the most exciting parts to me of the ERA. Um, I keep hearing the critique that it's only about gender, but I don't believe that. I think that if we had an ERA, for example, we could force a change in the immigration laws, which currently... If you look at them, they are very skewed against immigrant women. Um, so it is not the case that you can't be intersectional with the ERA. So we're starting that project, which I'm very excited about. But Caroline, Terry all around is just super pumped to be doing the work of now, right now. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned this at the very beginning that she did her fist pump as she was passionately talking with Kristen and me and how I just think she's fabulous. And it's so obvious. I, and I hope it's obvious having heard the interview with her. I hope it's obvious how passionate and excited she is to be doing this work. Yeah. Well, her and, and all of the people yes. that we saw and that we met at the conference, um, which really, uh, for me, at least it really deepened my understanding of the movement at large because mm-hmm. I mean, you have you had women who were there from the mid 60s mm-hmm. who are still working at it today, who are still angry, covered in now buttons, so many buttons, decades of buttons. Listen, now has button swag nailed that button game. Whew. Oh, it is on point. They slay those buttons. Yeah, they do. What excites me the most is, is this moment that we're in. Look, just go figure. You've got and you've got a woman who is proudly feminist. Um, who has run an, a campaign of inclusivity on issues and an inclusive campaign, but specifically on issues, all right, running as the Democratic nominee for President of the United States of America. And you have a, a, a demagogue, a deeply misogynistic, racist, xenophobic demagogue running against her. You could not have a, a, a more stark, I think, um, description of exactly what this what this country is struggling with, mm. right? We are struggling w- with. I I do view Hillary Clinton's candidacy as our opportunity to make a clean break with our racist and sexist and homophobic past, and and to reject Donald Trump as the epitome of what we don't like about America's history, and to and to move forward with 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 a, with a real promise of equality for all the different communities that are that are uh, that make up this country. Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so so much to Terry O'Neill for talking to us, giving us her time and also to the organization for having us at the conference. Um we were truly honored to go and listeners hopefully this has been as informative and helpful of a history lesson for you as it has been for us yeah and if i mean if we if this episode and the conversation with terry can play a role in reducing some of those generational gaps and misunderstandings um i will be super pleased uh i think you know there will always be divisions in how people of different ages backgrounds whatever see the world but if we can help bridge that chasm of misunderstanding, 
uh, to show that the women of now and the second waivers were not across the board one entity. Yeah, I mean, and it's just so there's just so much that we today as millennial feminists, however you want to identify yourself, there's so much that we have to learn from that period in time about <laughs> how things were not so long ago and how much things have changed and that we are should not take any of it for granted. Um, but also how much certain things have not changed and how we do need to stay angry and keep following that anger. Yeah. And wave our angry feminist penance. Yeah. And if you want to learn more about now uh, and or get involved, you can head over to their website at now.org. And we'd love to hear from you about everything that we've been talking about today and everything that Terry shared with us. Uh, MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I have a letter here from Lauren on our Women in Political Campaigning episode from a little while back. And Lauren writes, I'm a 22-year-old recent college graduate who's working as a political fundraiser in D.C. for a mid-sized trade association. In college, I worked in several roles on my home representatives campaigns, including as an intern and later as a field organizer. In both campaign cycles, my rep's chief of staff was a woman, and the majority of staff at all levels were women. While I recognize that this is true for a minority of campaigns, I think my ability to work in an almost entirely female campaign environment gave me the confidence that I could hold any position in a campaign office that I wanted. I think you missed the mark slightly in what seemed to be your suggestion that fundraising jobs are less prestigious and not outward-facing in campaigns. While they aren't in the same war room necessarily, finance directors are almost always included in all high-level meetings. After all, no strategy can be implemented if you don't have the funds to back it up. Finance directors are counted on to know how much money is currently in the bank, what the day-to-day cost of operating the campaign is, and how much the campaign can be expected to raise as the cycle continues. While a low-level fundraiser might stay in the office and make arrangements for the next event or make invitations, I think that fundraising jobs are frequently some of the most outward-facing jobs on a campaign. I think many women are drawn to finance careers because the hours for fundraising are significantly more predictable. Low-level field work is popular for both men and women, but the hours are insane and very few people can continue with that lifestyle for very long. I think many women choose to shift tracks because they want a career with more work-life balance or one that will allow them to have a family more easily, which is probably why many women choose not to pursue top-level field jobs in strategy positions. However, that does not mean the finance positions are inferior to the high-level field positions. I've only ever worked on Democrats' campaigns, but that's my two cents based on my experience. Well, Lauren, thank you so much. And I would say... That wasn't two cents. That was that was a whole nickel. Um, so thanks so much for sharing your experience with us. And I have a letter here from Nicole in response to our librarian episode in which we mentioned the division between women who went into teaching and women who went into librarianship. She says, hello, literally writing on my phone while on the treadmill. Uh, Nicole, that is dangerous. Uh, I hope you stopped. 
Uh, she says, you talked about ye oldy public schools being, quote, kind of intense sometimes because there were, quote, untrained women teachers coming in with students of all ages who were sometimes larger and taller, and it could be physically exacting to manage a classroom. Hello? Hello. Uh, this is still happening today. I was a public school teacher in Baltimore City and Washington, D.C. for seven years. Several things to comment on. One, I am 5'2", and students were often taller than I was, even when I taught middle school. When I taught high school, I was often the shortest person in the room. Two, untrained teachers are still common, particularly in the urban schools where I taught. Alternative certification programs, Think Teach for America, provide large numbers of women teachers with a summer's worth of training. Let me tell you, not enough. I was alternatively certified, so I'm not against these programs totally, but they do place undertrained teachers in high-needs classrooms. In higher-performing schools, kids in one class are typically the same age. That's not a guarantee in urban schools. One year, I taught kids in the same class who ranged in age from 12 to 16. High rates of retention, particularly among black students, make urban classrooms highly diverse. And even if students are the same age, the range of academic abilities is staggering. It is still physically exhausting and remained that way the entire seven years I taught. Four, as for, quote, breathing that bad air of those stifled classrooms and listeners, she's referring to... The efforts to get more women into librarianship by convincing them that you won't be so stifled in these classrooms and it's, you know, less physically exacting work to be a librarian. Uh, Nicole says, my very first classroom had two tiny opaque windows. Only one opened and even then it opened inward six inches. Talk about a stifled classroom. None of my classrooms in D.C. had windows that opened, but they were floor to ceiling. So at least I got sunshine. Kind of a long email, but I just wanted to point out that many teachers are still dealing with difficult situations every day as they do the hard work of educating our youth. Thanks for the great content. I look forward to future episodes. And thanks for the insight, Nicole. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about second wave feminism. And now, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 